right, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 155 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would have to be the tie-in to the schnooker episode of the sls cast yes if you remember back from episode 147 when we discussed the highest possible score without a free ball being 147 it turns out that the maximum possible score in a single break with a free ball at the start of the break is 155 <laughs> look at that even continuations within continuations it's like sls castception Yes, and with that very, very weird tie-in to Schnooker, again, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us from L.A. would be, of course, our resident Sony employee, Tim! Now, Matt, do you have, like, the Schnooker fetish? I don't. I don't. I actually, um, I, I had to do that in the spiel. I forgot to, I forgot to do my regular thing like I'm supposed to, and... <laughs> I searched that while I was talking. So, <laughs> yay me for finding something in like eight seconds. Yeah. Weren't there like maybe 155 people on the Mayflower? That would have been so much cooler. But again, forgot to look it up. So um, <laughs> we're just going to have to go with the incredible off-the-cuff skills. That was finding that schnooker thing in like eight seconds. This is indeed our Thanksgiving episode. May I yes, just want to point is. out? We, we are here on the Monday. It's the 23rd of, of October. Listen to me. 23rd of November. And we are sitting here just a few precious days away from Turkey Day. All Turkey's Eve. And this is the episode that you will be able to hear Matt do his trademark gobble gobble bitches. That I know everybody out there in Radio Land is super excited to listen to. <laughs> oh well, you—you've uh, you, spoiled the end of the show. D- well, okay, did I spoil it or did I just remind you about it? It may have been both, but <laughs> let's go with spoil. <laughs> so I, I, I hear you smacking your lips and taking a, a, a minute, a second to respond after the smacking of lips. So it sounds Mm. like you are drinking something. Now, are you drinking water, or are you perhaps drinking wild turkey? I am not. I'm not drinking the wild turkey. I am just drinking the water. Although, Mr. Beer has favored me, and I have gotten uh, to try a couple of new things before they come out, the most recent of which... Turkey-flavored beer? No. (laughs) <laughs> it's right up there with hot dog flavored beer i'm sure um is in the fridge and i have to crack it open uh i guess i'll probably end up doing that at some point here in the next couple of days uh, apparently uh, mike's hard lemonade people or whatever they've come up with a new series of harder drinks which are eight percent by volume so we're getting pretty serious here folks and they have a new green apple that is coming out. It's not quite out yet, and I have a couple cans in the fridge. So is Mr. it Mr. Beer has 
graced me with that. And he even surprised me with a case of Blue Moon gingerbread ale or whatever. So uh, he left that on my doorstep last night. I was like super excited when I got home. Well, it's a good thing you're, hopefully your kids, I'm pretty sure your kids are smart enough not to like just crack them open at, you know, on the way to school. He he, he texted me. We were, we were actually doing our Thanksgiving uh, meal shopping last night and um, good Lord, I, I didn't realize how expensive it was to throw a Thanksgiving meal. My parents, holy shit. They have spent a lot of money on Thanksgiving over the years. So, Mister Mister Beer's kind of like your your Santa Claus. Yes, you know, yes. like he, you he might get a brief message. look at him. You, you yeah, might get a did. look at him when leaving it on your doorstep. Yes, I get to look at him a lot. But no, he 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 texted me while I was at the store, and he's like, "Hey, are you are you at home?" And I'm like, "Oh no, man, I'm out doing the shopping right now for Thanksgiving." And he's like, "Okay, well, I left something for you on your front doorstep." And I was like, "Sweet." I figured it was just another beer to try, and nope, there was a big old case box down there, and I was like, "Yes." So, so are you more into like flavored beer now? Not, I don't, not necessarily. Honestly, flavored I beer haven't or... even tried this yet. I have, I have not even tried this one yet. So, well, now you're getting like apple like... stuff, and beforehand you didn't like pumpkin beer. Now all of a sudden you're drinking pumpkin beer. <laughs> Matt, you're changing <laughs> I, well, on me, dude. To be fair you're changing to on the, me to the pumpkinator. Uh, but it, it's it's interesting. I don't like Blue Moon. Um, it, it's it's too much of a Hefeweizen style for me, and I'm not a big fan of the wheat beer. Uh, but this is not a wheat beer. This is an actual ale, and it's a like a ginger snap something. So I haven't even had a chance to try this yet. However, I know my wife has been dying to get her hands on it. So if I don't drink it, she's going to drink it from underneath me without me knowing. And yeah. isn't ginger snap it's it's... another another name for uh, for a, a like a ginger who you know the dingleberry on a ginger? I have no idea. I guess we could ask my ginger daughter later when she gets older. Maybe like may, maybe in like gingers. twenty years. Like, hey, guess what? Guess what? The, this creep mentioned, and I am now <laughs> going to ask you, my child. Yeah. There tell you us go. about your okay. Um, so okay, so you mentioned purchasing food for Thanksgiving, and you, and you said that your parents. Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of money on Thanksgiving grub. Now, to you, how much is a lot when it comes to uh, uh, purchasing a meal for a, you know a, a number of people? Because I, I, I assume that your entire family is getting together for Thanksgiving. Well, uh, yeah, we're going to have 16, perhaps 17 people here. Um, and But 16 for sure. And that is going to consist of my mother and father-in-law, my brother and sister-in-law. They're two kids my my brother and sister-in-law um so it's my brother-in-law and sister-in-law because it's my wife's sister's family and her parents and then my actual brother and his wife so brother and sister-in-law and their three kids plus the five of us and per- and perhaps my dad my dad is in a unique work situation where he does not have the day after thanksgiving off this year and so he's kind of up in the air as to whether or not he wants to do the big drive down and then have to turn around and possibly drive right back so i cannot fault him for not wanting to do a 16 hour drive that's just yeah so so I'm hoping that he's going to be able to swing it, but if not, obviously totally understand. So we definitely have 16 and possibly 17, and we're already at almost 
we're a little over nine dollars a person. That's not too bad. No, but you can normally do a good meal uh, if you're cooking a, like a big uh, meal and everything for even for a bunch of people. You can generally get away for about six to seven dollars a person, and that's getting good. I mean, that and that's getting good produce and uh, you know and quality stuff. Not necessarily the ultra top of the line Gordon Ramsay walking in the door, but. <laughs> you know, very. Yeah, you're, you're not very, eating like whole food foods, all stuff. organic. <laughs> exactly, you know? so, but definitely good quality produce, good quality meats and stuff, and you can still get away for about six to seven dollars a person. I was, I was like, holy crap! I, I'm dropping like 150 dollars, and people haven't even showed up yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> it'll be worth it, yeah. though. It'll be worth it once the aroma of Thanksgiving enters your nostrils. The, oh, the idea yeah. of money will flutter away. It will be an afterthought. Oh, I don't even mind. Are you kidding? I'm super excited. This is the first time that we've ever really truly had, you know, the big family Thanksgiving. So I'm super stoked that we're doing it. I mean, uh, and and now I have a much greater appreciation for having showed up at other people's houses all these years. And <laughs> Take- <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. We've brought stuff like, you know, oh, what do you need us to bring? And of course, you know, we would bring stuff. I've even brought the turkey before, um, you know, but shoot, spending 25 bucks on a turkey isn't, it, you know, is nothing when it's just 25 bucks. It's like, hey, no, Matt, we, we all know that you're one, your family just brings the cranberry sauce and that's it. Yes, yes, yes. If you ever wondered where all that ocean spray goes, my family. That's where it goes. Well, it's like my uncle. My uncle, every time we have a family get-together or family party, he only brings the chips, and that's it. He doesn't cook anything. Nice. He just brings the chips. But when he, So with your dad, you like every classic 80s holiday movie, your family should drive, drive the 16 hours to them because I'm sure there's going to be that classic 80s moment. When the night just doesn't feel right without old pops there, and then the family caravans it up to wherever he's at, and you surprise him with a big old hot turkey leg, some mashed potatoes, some gravy, and love. Ah, yes. And we'll keep that image lovingly tucked away in our heads, because (laughs) that's not going to happen either. Um you know, I like I said though. I mean, I completely understand. Obviously, I mean that that actually ends up being like the terrible, selfish son. If I'm like, well, I don't care, drive down here anyway. You know, that that's terrible. It just you know it sucks because I don't want to leave him on his own either. You know, it's kind of one of those ah, what do you do? But yeah, it's yeah, just no, not you. feasible to pack the meal and us into the vehicle and drive up to him either. So. But what about you? What are you doing? Well, there will be a grand total of five of us <laughs> nice. on Thanksgiving. And we're uh, my significant other, as uh, some people know, she's from my girlfriend. She heard me say significant other, and she took offense to that. No, oh, really? six of us. There's six. There's going to be six of us, not five of if us. If you're not careful, there's about to be four of you. I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so, uh, well, I guess you can get upset about the significant other thing. All right. <laughs> well, uh, she's, from, uh, she's from Northern California, so we're going to be going up there and uh, staying at, um, staying, staying near San, the Santa Cruz area and doing 
you know, the big Thanksgiving feast there. I'm going to make a couple pies. Her sister makes a really good, like, apple, I think, an apple crisp type of pie. She makes delicious. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You mean you've been doing all this baking and you're not bringing a pie? You're not going to I am a, a pumpkin pie. Oh, and, and will this be a homemade pumpkin pie? Will you it will have be. scraped the innards out of the pumpkin and yes. boiled it into pulp until you can get that <laughs> consistency and... We still have our Halloween pumpkins sitting outside rotting, and we're going to mm-hmm. bring those. <laughs> I am I am told that it's not like banana bread. You can't just let them rot till you go. <laughs> it, they're not rotting. They're fermenting. Oh, fermenting. Outside. I see. Um, A nice harvest wine, as it were. <laughs> but, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make my own pumpkin pie. Um and one family tradition, uh, with my family at least, we did something called Watergate salad. And I can't remember, Matt, if I've asked you about Watergate salad before over the past couple years. Are you familiar with Watergate salad? I am familiar with Waldorf salad. I am not 100% familiar with Watergate salad. It does sound, it does sound familiar, though. Because they both have W's. No, in, no, in no. A? I'm pretty sure either you mentioned this once before and I'm just not recalling it correctly, or... Yeah, it's green uh, and has, like, the pistachio jello and, uh, and not mushrooms, and marshmallows and uh, yes! pineapple. Okay, yes, yes, all right. Yes, you have talked about this before. But please, uh, I want to hear it again. So. Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, the, well, to cap it off, I was just going to say I might make that. But I'm the only one... I will be the only one that will probably like it. Why? Because Northern Californians just don't know what they're missing out on when it comes to a tasty Southern Watergate salad. But I guess it's kind of like a very kind of kind of like a kind of like white trash sounding when I list the ingredients. Oh, Watergate salad! That sounds delicious. The name of it sounds delicious. It reminds what, me of what Nixon. It, what, <laughs> yeah, no. What's in it? Well, it's filled with betrayal. Blank audio tape and a robbery. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like, then I start listing off everything. You're like marshmallows, pistachio, jello. Oh, okay. What does it look like? It looks like moldy vomit. <laughs> that's exactly that pumpkin that's been sitting out in your backyard for the past three years. It looks like the inside of that, just nice. a little bit more green. Nice. Uh, but it's good. It's really good. Yeah, so that, that's that's kind of a maybe. So yeah, we're going to be doing that and hanging out with her family and whatnot because I'll, uh, we'll be in, in Houston uh, for Christmas to visit my family. So we got the little fun little trade-off going on, happening. So that uh, that is what I will be doing for this Thanksgiving. Awesome. Awesome. Well, now that we have tantalized these people with our Thanksgiving traditions. I was running out of T words there. Sorry. Um, shall we go ahead and get to news? We must. Oh, wait. You know what else I forgot to do? I'm just completely 100% on it. Um, I have forgotten check your email? to check for email. Let's just go ahead and we're going to do that right now because it's just a series of clicks that I can do while I'm talking. I've at least set that aspect of it up. So it's not like I'm sitting here like I was about a month ago trying to type in the damn fucking password every single every single time. This just in, ladies and gentlemen, Matt has dropped the ball. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt has Matt dropped the ball. can't even the find ball. the goddamn ball. Are you kidding me right now? Like the uh, mouse? You can't find your mouse? Yeah. 
Matt is checking the email, the email of the SLS cast, and you can find, you can find the SLS cast yeah, email. No, no, no emails. But if they wanted to send an email, they can oh, surely they could, they send could us totally an email. They could totally do that. Um, apparently not that they're going to, but they totally could by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. All right, so here we go, folks. It's... The news. Yes, and first up from me is probably the saddest and scariest news that I have seen in a long time. And I and, and I do mean just within the world of movies. Clearly there's a lot worse things going on in the world today, but that is neither here nor there for this conversation. Here we go, folks, from Polygon.com by way of Julia Alexander. Disney will release a new Star Wars movie every year for as long as it can. I am not joking. This is not a parody article. This is serious. And I am sad. And the reason, before we even get into the article, here's why. As much of a fan of Star Wars as I am, and as excited as I am that we're finally bringing the epic arced trilogy of trilogies to a close by introducing 9, 10, and 11. Or, I'm sorry, good lord, 7, 8, and 9. What? I am just not on it tonight. Good God. Um, and I am definitely excited to see that they are bringing certain standalone films to the fore to try and give them a shot and see if certain things can develop or perhaps if they can then transition those into uh, straight to blu-ray whatever uh, move them into netflix or amazon bring them to abc that kind of thing all that kind of stuff is really cool and exciting i'm glad but to hear that they're literally going to try and bring a movie to the front of the theater every single year non-stop it it's going to take them like 10 or 12 years to stop doing this before it and it's just I'm worried it's a train wreck but here we go there are six more Star Wars movies coming out over the next six years, but Disney has no plans to stop there. According to a new feature in Wired, Disney and Lucasfilm have decided to put out a new Star Wars movie every year, so long as there's an audience willing to buy tickets. Considering that pre-order tickets for The Force Awakens sold out in minutes, becoming the fastest-selling movie of all time, it doesn't look like fan disinterest will be an issue. Oh, man. Okay. Roger, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, Wired Adam, uh, Wired Adam, Wired writer Adam Rogers has this to say about it. Is this Rogers added that another way of looking at the volume of Star Wars films the studio is interested in making is by examining age. If, like him, you were quote conscious for the first Star Wars film end quote, then chances are you probably won't even be around by the time the last one is released. That is how far ahead they are literally trying to do this. Perhaps even more interesting, Miss Alexander continues, is that executives at Disney and Lucasfilm aren't just interested in making more sequels, but in branching the franchise out into an infinite series, into a quote, infinite series, end quote. Think what this Marvel Cinematic Universe has been able to accomplish over the past seven years. That means that fans of Star Wars 
Uh, fans of what Star Wars has been able to come, with, come up with in its expanded universe will more than likely start to see that content making its way to the big screen as the studios dig into the archive for more stories to tell year after year. I'm going to start there. There's much more to this article. There's a little bit more to this article that you can read. But again, they're not joking. They're literally trying to just run this train into the ground. And again, I get it. They bought, Disney bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion for a reason. It's not just they could sit it and put it up on the shelf and go, my precious. I understand. But maybe, just maybe, let's see how these six go. Right? Let's just see how it goes with these six and just kind of see where you can where where you can go with it before you just jump on and start having this big long term plan. I understand Marvel has set something up or has established kind of this universe franchise thing where they've got it going on, but even that was only rolled over to three phases and that is ending. So uh, I don't know, Tim, what do you think? I am not happy about this news. Because I'm afraid they're just going to destroy it. I don't. I don't like it either. I mean, I think. I mean, uh, with the not the yeah with the Avengers movies with the Marvel movies, I think they're kind of destroying the whole Marvel franchise already. Um, especially once the the whole Avengers storyline is over with, and they continue on with the same characters or or, or new actors playing those characters. They're just going to run all the stories and all like all the movies into the ground. Uh, leaving you with the same shit over and over and over again. And I'm already feeling that, as people know, with the current Marvel movies, and I just don't want to see that with Star Wars. A property that, despite what anybody has to say about the the prequels, or a couple of the prequels or whatever, it is still a respected property. A, you know, decent cartoons, uh, animated epi- uh, shows, series star wars series that, that's come out um there's been a few of them uh you also have books star wars books fan fiction uh, you know it's just you don't want to ruin all of that it has a good thing going for itself you don't want to start like putting out a shitty star wars movie uh like like every other year have a shitty star wars movie or every year have a shitty star wars movie and then once in a while have one that actually sticks like I said with the Avengers, great Avengers movies, and I'm not just talking about like Age of Ultron and the Avengers, but all the superheroes within the Avengers, it, they're, they're too far in between the ones that are good, you know? Ant-Man was cool, but there hasn't been a really good one like Ant-Man, a fresh one like Ant-Man that has come out for a while, I guess other than Guardians of the Galaxy. Which doesn't it, tie into the Avengers. Which does not tie into the Avengers, exactly. And I just don't want that to happen with the Star Wars universe. It's kind of like when... Now, I, I don't mean to lump in a serious thing into this, but uh, I'm a history minor. And Matt, I don't know if maybe in some of your history classes, uh, if uh, you guys have had this discussion, um, but I took a, a course over the history of, of genocide. And one of the main topics, one of the main things that the, that, the, that the professor, that she really wanted to ingrain in our heads, is the importance of that word. And how we can't slap that word on every little bitty thing that could represent it, or, you know, the, the, the meaning, that word itself will lose its, 
its its definition. You know, it won't have that impact. I would agree. Yeah, and and I kind of feel the same thing with with all this shit. You know, with having fifty five million, you know, Marvel and Marvel movies, superhero movies. We don't need fifty five million Star Wars movies. Why not have these three? And the uh, Rogue One, which is the anthology film, which I think is kind of a cool idea. The Han Solo movie and the Boba Fett movie, I think, is the other one they're wanting to do. Take another, like, ten-year break (laughs) or six-year break of no Star Wars and then do something else. Yeah. I mean, anything. Anything. (laughs) Would be advisable to me than this. So, well, at least we're in agreement on that. Um, would definitely love to hear your thoughts. I know there are some Star Wars fans who listen to this show, so perhaps maybe you agree or disagree. Would love to know. What do you got for us, Tim? All right, I'm going to do two pieces of news here, since I have a couple more than Matt. First up, from io9.com, this is something that... it, It sounds cool at first, but once you hear the reasoning behind it, it quickly becomes dumb. John Malkovich and Robert Rodriguez have made a movie no one will see for a hundred years. This is written by Jermaine Lucier. Think the secrecy around the biggest Hollywood blockbusters is crazy? They don't come close to what John Malkovich and Robert Rodriguez are doing. The pair has collaborated for a film that no one will see for a hundred years. Literally. This isn't some joke. They've made a film called 100 Years, which is being placed in a special time locked safe that won't open again until November 18th, 2115. Why? Well, because it's a promotion for Louis VIII Cognac, an ultra-luxury liqueur, or an ultra-luxury, yeah, liquor, that is aged 100 years. Bottles currently on shelves were made back in 1915, so they decided a piece of art that speaks to their commitment to quality was something worth doing. Quote, Louis VIII is a true testament to the mastery of time, and we sought to create a proactive piece of art that explores the dynamic relationship of the past, present, and future, end quote, said Global Executive Director of Louis VIII, Ludovic Duplessis. In a news release, they approached Malkovich, who du, uh, Duplessis calls the, quote, the greatest actor of his generation, end quote, to come up with an idea. What that idea is, they would not say. It's all part of the secrecy and illusion. All they'd say was that it's set in the present and it's, quote, emotionally charged, end quote, according to Rodriguez. And, and in the article, there's a couple pictures here. And, uh, and they ask, so what are images like this one you see above? They're part of three teasers that are created for the film, each of which imagines a different version of the future. And you can watch these three uh, teasers on the io9.com article. And I continue, quote, There were several options when the project was first presented of what the future would be, end quote, said Malkovich. Quote, an incredibly high-tech, beyond-computerized version of the world, a post-Chernobyl, back-to-nature, semi-collapsed civilization, and there was a retro future, which was how the future was imagined in science fiction of the 1940s or 50s. End quote. 
The three teaser trailers were created to show what it might look like when someone uncovers the film in 100 years. But, and this is important, none of them are the actual film. The one in the vault, that'll live at the house of Louis VIII in Cognac, France. Now, to come up with that idea, Malkovich did lots of research about futurism, science fiction, and even versions of today from 100 years ago. Quote, some of it was strangely accurate, oddly enough, but of course, the vast majority of it is unimaginable, and I think that's what the future is to most of us, end quote, he said. Uh, And the article goes on from there. So like I said, it's a cool idea. I think it's interesting. Uh, or, Or the idea of it, you know, not being seen for 100 years is an interesting idea. Just kind of a cool little project, even. Just something neat uh, for those to uncover, you know, in the future. But the reasoning behind it is fucking dumb. <laughs> and you got to watch these trees, uh, these uh, teaser trailers and listen to... Uh, and, like, there's, like, a, like, an interview with John Malkovich. And I, I know he's a master thespian. He's very serious. And he seems like a cool guy. And I, I love a number of his uh, of his films. But... The whole presentation of it is just a little too corny. Um, Matt, do you have any comments, questions, concerns about a 100-year film? (laughs) Or a film Um, that won't be seen for 100 years? I think it's pretty pointless, quite frankly. Because even... Let's just, for the sake of arguments say that this short film is, is is good. Let's just say it's good. It will be so irrelevant by the time it comes out that nobody's going to care. At best, it'll be some publicity stunt in 2115. Oh, look what we're going to do. Oh. Nobody who's alive today is going to be around for it. <laughs> uh, except for the offhand chance that someone who happens to be like an infant right now <laughs> is... It is going to be around, and even then, they're not going to know who any of these people were or what this stuff is. So, uh, I think it's I think it's just stupid. Maybe we can get anonymous to work on them, <laughs> and they can hack it and release the stupid thing so people can see it now. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be very interesting, but I don't think it's like anything to be super excited for. I get the feeling that maybe Jupiter Ascending. Might be a more entertaining watch. I don't know. <laughs> uh, nice. But I'll, ju- I'll jump in this next piece of news here. From Hackaday.com. Um, Suspension Bridges of Disbelief is the name of the article. This is written by Alex Weinberg. And um, the article talks about suspension bridges that are used in movies. And these suspension bridges that are, uh, you know, that get blown up in the movies and... Uh, All these engineers, you know, especially with, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who every time that there's a movie based in space that comes out, like he did with Gravity and Interstellar, he uh, comments on it and talks about how realistic those movies were. Well, engineers have been doing the same thing, apparently, with, uh, with suspension bridges. Go figure. But I guess it was bound to happen eventually. But what is very interesting here is... Um, are, are, are the movies that they choose are the worst movies uh, or, or, or the most inaccurate depiction of a bridge collapsing 
And the most accurate depiction of a bridge collapsing due to uh, an explosion or, uh, or, or some other disaster or whatnot. And I will read. There is a logic here, says this article. I'm jumping uh, into a couple paragraphs. A disaster scene involving a famous bridge serves both to uh, serves both to root the film in the real world and to demonstrate the enormity and the immediacy of the threat. The unmaking of these huge structures shocks us because many bridges have gained an aura of performance in our collective consciousness. Although we know when the Brooklyn bid, although we know all all. Wait, although we know when the Brooklyn Bridge was built and who built it, we feel like it was always there and always will be. The destruction of our familiar human topography is even more disturbing than the deaths of the CGI victims. And I'm not just saying that as a misanthrope who loves bridges. However, in all the planning, storyboarding, rendering, and compositing of these special effects shots... Nobody pauses to consider how suspension bridges actually behave. I can accept messianic alien orphan superheroes and skyscraper-sized battle robots, but I will not stand for inaccurate portrayals of structural mechanics. It's fine to bend the laws of physics if the plot warrants it, but most suspension bridges... Uh, but most suspension bridge mistakes are so needless and stupid that their only function seems to be irritating engineers. And the article continues to talk about how suspension bridges actually work, um, which I won't go too much into detail here. And I, okay, so I'm going to get into the best and the worst depiction of a suspension bridge collapsing in a movie uh, because this is first. I will start off with uh, with what, what was the best depiction of a suspension bridge uh, collapsing. Matt, I will have to ask you, what, what is your guess? I think you, uh, during the pre-show, you, you made a guess. Are you sticking with I that am. guess? I am. Bridge over the River Kwai. Bridge over the River Kwai. Do you have any reasoning behind it? Um, because this was during a time, uh, th- it was during that magical time when they were when when certain productions could get away with not using models and this was of course the era of only practical effects and i think that that hit the sweet spot okay bridge over river kwai was that the answer yes yes that is my answer and quoting why the most realistic bridge collapse sequence somehow comes from a film franchise in which people regularly get cut in half by errant kites. In this chapter, Sam Lawton is stuck in traffic on the North Bay Bridge in western New York, played by Vancouver's Lionsgate Bridge, the only non-iconic bridge on this list, when he notices that cracks are splaying out from a point where some workers are cutting up the road. These cracks widen, and soon the vertical cables start to pop out of their connections to the main suspension cables and to the beams under the road deck. A progressive collapse ensues as each vertical suspender fails to compensate for the loss of its neighbor. The origin of the structural failure in this situation is pretty absurd because the asphalt driving surface on a traffic bridge is non-structural, the road itself 
rests on a steel structure, which would probably not be seriously compromised by some sawing and jackhammering on the asphalt. Further, it's hard to invent a scenario in which any of this could cause a failure at the top of a vertical suspender. But who knows, maybe there had been some plot-friendly corrosion in that steel. Regardless of the initial cause of failure, the collapse progress the collapse progresses in a halfway believable manner. The road deck falls, but the main catenary cables and the bridge towers remain. With no road to support, the vertical cables swing dumbly over the void. And that movie, ladies and gentlemen, is not Bridge Over the River Kwai. It is, in fact, Final Destination 5. That is, according to engineers, the most realistic bridge collapse sequence in a movie. Go figure. And I will say, I've, I've never watched... Other than maybe the first one, I don't think I've ever watched really any of the Final Destination movies, but they had the clip on this site. Um, or maybe I looked it up, I can't remember. But anyways, I, I watched that clip, and it's actually impressive. It's pretty cool. And the effects are neat. And I, you know, in some way, I can kind of see what they were talking about. And it's just fun to watch, other than just a bridge just kind of like exploding or just collapsing all at once. It's kind of like step-by-step, step, the progression into the next piece of the bridge kind of coming apart now the worst depiction of a bridge collapsing matt do you do you have a guess for this one i guess i i was thinking more about what you were when you were going over the top of the top one i didn't realize that we're going with like complete modern suspension bridges because when i was thinking bridge on the river kwai which is the movie from the book bridge over the river kwai i could see how Bridge on the River Kwai doesn't quite qualify as much as a suspension bridge. Um, so, man, I, I guess I kind of missed the mark on that. So now let's think here. Uh, the worst depiction. Hmm. Let's see here. Oh, I'm trying to think of just some ridiculous disaster flick. Um, I don't know. The, the day after tomorrow or something sure let's let's do that i mean because if you've ever seen if you've ever seen the the uh footage of gallop and gertie then you know it can get that that it can actually get pretty ridiculous and yet still be realistic so is that your final answer yes but only if you tell me you've seen the footage of gallop and gertie of what? Gallop and Gertie. Gallop. What are you talking about? That's uh, that's literally. I'm not making it up. Okay. The 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 Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Tacoma, Washington. It it bridges Tacoma to Gig Harbor. Oh okay. yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I've seen that. And you actually see the thing literally just rolling right, like someone is flapping it out like a rug. That they called it Gallop and Gertie because of how it was built and that's real footage of that actually happening so you can see just how ridiculous a bridge can look and not fall apart in real life they call it sturdy gertie today because apparently that's not supposed to happen again um but at any rate yeah i guess we'll go with uh the day after tomorrow i'm sure they've got some ridiculous shit in there you're that. incorrect of course i'm incorrect the answer is the dark knight rises 
That is my horrible Dalek slash Bane impersonation. But oh, yeah, yeah, it's the dark. Rises. The Dark Knight rises. Uh, and the article says here, Bane blows up a series of bridges, actually some New York City bridges with some fictional CGI additions, to cut Gotham off from the world. Explosions sever the suspension cables and the road decks all at once, and a neat section of uh, of each bridge falls into the river below. Nothing else happens. That's it. Completely cutting the main structural element on a suspension bridge has no effect on the structural integrity as a whole. Movie magic. I must note that the bridge featured in the movie's climax is a cantilever bridge and therefore outside the scope of this article. I guess I didn't have to read that. I did. I didn't realize that before. Thank you, article. Uh, but it says, imagine stringing a clothesline between two buildings and putting some shirts out to dry. Now cut the line in the middle. In our world, the line loosens, the line loses all its capacity and the shirt just falls to the ground. In Christopher Nolan's world, the clothesline is unharmed and, who knows, may actually be stronger. I consider this the worst suspension bridge destruction seen in motion picture history. The Golden Gate Bridge collapse in the core is somehow more realistic than this one. Nolan, who famously hired uh, astrophysicist Kip Thorne to advise him on black holes for interstellar, failed to hire a sophomore engineering student to explain regular gravity here on Earth. In all quotes. Wow, man, these engineers are brutal. Yikes. So yes, the best destruction of a suspension bridge depicted in film is in fact Final Destination 5, and the worst is Dark Knight Rises. Done. Okay, well I'm going to go ahead and go through this last piece of news for me because it looks like we are way over on news at this point. Um, This is coming to us from our little, not our little, from our friend over at Reddit, uh, the... Uh, mod, I guess he's a, he's a or yeah he's he's like a moderator even he's ultra cool. Mi hyphen sixteen evil who has tagged himself on Reddit as eyes as blue as Daniel Craig's. <laughs> I got a kick out of that, so I wanted to share it. All right, so this was his tagline again. Now he gets all of his um uh he he does actually use sourced material here and everything, so um. We're not just making up numbers at this point, but he just, I I do like his op-eds and this is a particularly good one. Uh, He's covering box office week while the hunger games mocking Jay part two opened to an impressive 101 million. It was not the victory lap lions gate intended opening significantly lower than all other hunger games films. Now, Again, Hunger Games Part Two, Mockingjay Part Two, did come in number one at a little over 101 million, and its worldwide gross thus far is a little over 247 million. So we're not—they're not exactly worried about money per se, but they were just really banking on a whole lot more money, I think. Uh, Spectre is in at the number two spot. And it's in its third week. The Peanuts movie actually is still out there, and it is in the number three spot. The number four spot belongs to The Night Before. That's the new Seth Rogen flick. And that earned a cool $10.1 million. And finally, The Secret in Their Eyes debuted at $6.6 6 And it goes on here. 
You know you are playing a high-stakes game when a film is, is one of only five in 2015 to open $100 million plus domestic and yet still have it feel like a misstep. So, before we get all high and mighty, let's point one thing out. The budget for both Mockingjay films is estimated around $300 million, and in just one week of opening for Part 2, the worldwide cume of the Mockingjay films is $1 billion. So, clearly this is not a conventional sense of flop. However, it's not the kind of Deathly Hallows Part 2 success that Lionsgate and many were expecting. The film not only opened lower than Part 1, whose underperformance was excused for being a Part 1 of 2, but also opened more than 50 uh, lower than the second film, Catching Fire. Uh, the fact that it barely limped to $100 million is a testament to the fact that this franchise had a quick wick and any future installment would only produce diminishing returns. A lot of blame has been put on what caused the relative lack of audience, poor marketing, bad reviews, bad audience reception to Part 1, bad reception to the source material, etc. But perhaps the main reason is just its position. It's weird to think that a franchise this young would feel outdated, especially compared to two franchises that are over 40-plus years old each, but Spectre and Force Awakens seems to have compared, uh, seems to have taken much of the young audience with them. Hunger Games will end okay, but don't expect yet another wave of young adult dystopian novel adaptations. Well, expect it, but just not with as much vigor as before. Um, now, MI-16Evil does go on to discuss the Seth Rogen comedy and the Oscar um, the Oscar uh, Oscar buzzed film Carol, which is kind of interesting. But I'm going to stop there. I, we are going to be covering Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 for next week, uh, just because of the way life has rolled out. But what do you think about this information on the Hunger Games, sir? Is this surprising to you, or is this kind of as expected, in your opinion? As expected. So same here. I I read the I, I remember when I read the books, uh, and I uh, over the course of about a day and a half, I read the last two books because I was really interested in how it turned out, and it was a pretty solid read. But when the books came to a close, I had to give the author credit because while she definitely brought the material to the only logical end that it could, and thus I think created a good ending, I was just kind of left feeling blah. Like, you know, I just wish there had been more. I wish there had been a better way for it to end. So knowing how that was going to end i'm just i've just been waiting for part two to sit there and go yep i i don't think it's gonna plan out any better on screen <laughs> so well now, now, now you can look forward to a possible prequel to the hunger games and i read something about before that they're thinking about exploring oh wow unbelievable <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so anyways, yes, I do recommend that you finish up this article, though. Head over to reddit.com slash r slash movies. And if uh, you can just uh, search it also on Google, just search Reddit and then box office week 
uh, Hunger Games, and you should be able to pull that up. The, that is by the mod user MI-16Evil, and special thanks again to him because uh, we got permission to pretty much use carte blanche anytime he does these, so yay. And that is my news, sir. I just wanted to mention that Vin Deal, Vin... <laughs> Vin Deal, Vin Diesel announced a Riddick sequel and a Riddick Universe TV show. This was from comicbookmovie.com. Apparently his production company just launched a TV division or something. And so they want to make a series of, like I said, Riddick Universe TV shows based on people from Riddick that is not Riddick. And on top of that, do another Riddick movie. So who knows, Matt? We might not only just have 555 million Marvel and Star Wars movies, but we might have another 300 Riddick movies. I don't know. I I, I know I know that you're a fan of Vin Diesel and or you're you are a fan of Riddick. I just didn't know if you were that much of a fan of Riddick to be excited about a TV show. Um, no. all right well so is that gonna end the news sir that is my news all right well then here we go that concludes our news and it's gonna bring us to (laughs) furry square And this week's Three Squared is our favorite cameos. Now, these are not of all time or anything, so we may revisit this in the future because um, this provides such excellent fodder for things that are easy to do production-wise and still fun because it's a fun category. Um, I'm going to bring up my three. These are in no real particular order. They're just kind of the order that I thought of them in, so... However you want to look at that. Uh, back in 2002, we had kind of some new wave coming-of-age teen comedies, one of which was The New Guy. And this is a film that is very, very pop culture related, but also kind of centered um, in the background a lot of the music and stuff that was definitely popular in the day. And they had a lot of music-centric cameos in this film. And while the plot is completely outrageous, this is about a kid who uh, reinvents his image after having his dick broke at a mall. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to watch this movie again. And uh, upon his arrival, he has to, you know, he has the opportunity to uh, present himself as an ultimate badass. So it's in... Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But one of the things that that takes place in the film is there is um, a scene in a music shop, and I want to say that it's there. The same character ends up being in a few different places, <laughs> but it's the security guard in the music shop who just completely goes totally overboard and just is is willing to lay the smackdown upon anyone for any reason he deems necessary. And this security guard is played by none other than Vanilla Ice, 
That is correct, folks. Vanilla Ice plays a security guard in The New Guy. And just his stuff alone will keep you hunting for other musicians of the day um, in various forms and fashions uh, so that you can find out, find all these cool cameos. But, God, Vanilla Ice alone was absolutely hilarious. Moving into another complete genre, Mel Brooks, from 1974, we have Young Frankenstein, the parody film starring, of course, Gene Wilder. And um, of all of the fun things and interesting characters and wonderful uh, set elements and design elements from this hilarious movie... There is a scene that is done when the monster is wandering around and he comes across a blind man, someone who will clearly not judge him because he doesn't know what he looks like. And this blind man, (laughs) uh, Harold the Blind Man, is played by Gene Hackman and... It's just, a, I don't know, the scene itself is is little more than two minutes. But it is just so wonderfully placed because there's nothing like it that happens in the movie before and nothing like it that happens in the movie after. And it's the, the scene in and of itself didn't really even have to be in the movie. But just to hear him utter the words, Gene Hackman, Wait! I was going to make espresso! I mean, and that's just one of the build-ups. It's so, so good. Um, Completely unexpected and an utter delight. Gene Hackman, Harold the Blind Man, and Young Frankenstein, 1974. Finally, in a very, very brief but just ridiculously surprising cameo, comes to us from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves from 1991. Now, the... The thing here is, love or hate this movie for whatever for whatever reason. I recently rewatched the movie, and I guess I'm just still a sucker for it. I enjoyed it, but this reminded me of why we even have this category. I'm watching the movie, and then at the very end of the film, for its happy ending, of course, you know King Richard has to return and you know make everything right and blah blah blah, and up comes riding up. For the wedding scene, you know, if anybody has an objection, speak now, forever hold your peace. And then, bam, I object. And it's Sean Connery. And you're like, holy crap, Sean Connery coming out of nowhere. And so uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It was was even more amazing for because he's only, I mean, it's only like 30 seconds, right? But it was even more amazing is that this is the only other time he's associated with Robin uh, with the Robin Hood genre, because previously he had played in Robin and Marion, which is kind of like a <laughs> a very interesting look at the happily ever after. I'm using air quotes here. You can't see that, obviously, of the Robin Hood story. And so having seen that film years prior to seeing this film and then have him walk up as King Richard totally blew me away. Not to mention it was just very well placed, especially for its time. So my picks for this category in this particular episode, again, Vanilla Ice as security in The New Guy from 2002, Gene Hackman as Harold the Blind Man, 
from Young Frankenstein in 1974, and Sean Connery as King Richard from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, 1991. What do you got there, sir? Alrighty, I'm going to go chronologically, but backwards, starting with 2001's Zoolander, in honor of the release of the trailer for Zoolander 2, or Two-Lander, which (laughs) I kind of like. But it's Dave... Okay, so the movie had... There's a lot of cameos in this movie, but the one that really stood out for me uh, is David Bowie, because... At that time, in 2001, I was listening to a lot of David Bowie. And I still do listen to a lot of David Bowie, but I've never really have been exposed to his movies. It wasn't until some years later where I got uh, where I finally watched uh, uh, the, the Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and oh, I forgot the vampire one—the really weird, not that great vampire one that he's in. But regardless, David Bowie in Zoolander surprised the hell out of me when I saw it. And it's pretty cool. (laughs) I think it's kind of ingenious. Most of the cameos in the movie are, you know, their creation of them are pretty ingenious. Or how they're represented, represented, how they're represented on screen. Or what, what, fuck it, I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyways, um... But anyways, so we all know the story of Zoolander. Derek Zoolander is the aging male model. And out of the blue, this hot, sexy Hansel, because he's so hot right now, uh, takes away Derek Zoolander's spotlight and becomes the new, young, uh, super successful model. And that kind of, you know, he kind of uh, shoves Derek Zoolander out of the business. uh, Or tries to shove Derek Zoolander out of the business. Not intentionally, but just because of his fame. So they have this altercation and, and kind of their their feud bubbles and fizzes and kind of get, you know bubbles over until this one point where they decide to have a walk off, and so they jump off you know they jump up on stage, and uh, and so Hansel played by uh, Owen Wilson says well is who who are we going to call this thing we're going to have a walk off who are we going to who are we going to get to call it, and then of course who is it that just comes on uh, comes into the frame. It's David Bowie saying, if nobody has any objections, I believe I might be of service. It's really funny, very unexpected and really funny. And, and of course, right after he says that, the, the little bit of let's dance, you know, kind of plays as his name is shown in a credit right below him. Uh, and then like later on, he's, well, I say later on, but you know, just moments later, he's kind of going over the rules where he says like, uh, now th- this will be a straight walk off, old school rules, first model walks, second model duplicates, then elaborates, okay, boys, let's get to work or let's go to work. And then the walk off begins and it's absolutely hilarious. And of course, during the walk off, it, you know, cuts back and, you know, back and forth between him and uh Zoolander and Hansel doing the walk off and his reactions and all that stuff and it's really really funny um and I check it out if you have been living under a rock since 2001 or maybe you just turned five I I, I don't know just just watch it it's totally worth it um especially for that one scene uh my next favorite cameo is from 1978, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, entitled Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And for those of you who have seen the original 1950s movie, it starred Kevin McCarthy, 
and I forget the woman's name in it, uh, but one of the most famous shots at the end of the film or, or scenes at the end of the film where it is revealed that, you know, he is like, he's the last person in this town that has not been taken over by aliens. And, you know, it's the, the whole movie is about the pod people, you know, the aliens invade this small town and the aliens take over the, the residents' bodies. So you look at somebody and, you know, Matt looks like Matt, but he is totally not Matt. And so he, at the end of the movie, Kevin McCarthy, he realizes that he is the only one that is still himself that hasn't made that transformation yet. So he is flipping out. The woman that he loved became one. And, you know, he's just losing his shit. He's running in traffic, just screaming, they're coming, they're coming, you're next. And he looks directly at the camera, all frazzled and screaming. And he just, you're next. And it's a very tense moment. And it's also kind of scary because... You know, there's really not a lot of closure at that moment in the film. Well, in 1978, nobody was expecting Kevin McCarthy to... I mean, he's not reprising his role, but him in this movie, his cameo, is kind of like a direct continuation from that portion of the original film, where he's flipping out, he's running away from the pod people, and he's just, you're next, you're, they're coming, they're coming, you're next, you're next, they're gonna get you, help me, they're next, you're, you're next. Because that's what happens. Donald Sutherland, who is the lead in this film, uh, and again, the, I forget the woman's name who's in this film, they're driving in their car, you know, just having this normal conversation until Kevin McCarthy jumps out and slams his face against their car window, just screaming at them, just pleading for their help and, and, and warning them especially that, they're, they're, uh, that somebody is coming after them. Uh, not just them, but the entire population, the, you know, everybody who's in the city. And he looks behind him and he sees like these pod people coming after him. But yeah, you're watching it. You know, the camera doesn't show you the pod people, but you see his face, his reaction to his impending doom. And I think it was Roger Ebert who 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 commented on this. Uh, I, I forget exactly. But somebody mentioned that it, it was kind of like Kevin McCarthy has been running since the 50s. <laughs> since since the end of the original Invasions of the Body Snatchers, he has still been on the run until the 1978 film and you know when at that moment he I think he I, I think he gets hit by a car. Yeah, I think he gets hit by a car and they find him dead while the pod people are just kind of like surrounding him and not really doing anything at all. And at that moment, Donald Sutherland and the woman who's with him are still completely oblivious to what is going on and they they just they just see him as like oh he's just a senile man who needed help and we just saw him alive and freaking out we could have helped him but you know we thought he was senile now he's dead. They still have no idea that the pod people are, you know, will be coming after them shortly. And it's really cool and it's creepy. And it was a great surprise for those who are, uh, who, who, uh, who have seen the original and who appreciate Kevin McCarthy's performance in that film. It's just riveting. It's cool. And lastly, from 1953, one of my all-time favorite cameos, Buster Keaton in Charlie Chaplin's first talkie, Limelight. Yes. At this point, in 1953, it's important to know that Charlie Chaplin was still a name. And 
still well-known and famous, still had money. Buster Keaton was dead broke. Buster Keaton had a hard time making the transition from silent films into talkies. uh, Because when talkies came about, you couldn't have... uh, Like, Buster Keaton's movies, it was kind of like... And I don't want to say necessarily like hijinks, but it was very like madcap. It was these crazy stunts, you know, like the general with him on the train and doing all these crazy train stunts. And it's very visual. Well, with the introduction of sound, it's not just about the visuals. It's about the spoken dialogue as well. And so he struggled big time transferring into talkies. Struggling is an understatement because he didn't make it at all. So in 1953, or I, I guess 1952 uh, is when Limelight came out, Charlie Chaplin hired, reluctantly brought on Buster Keaton to appear in his film for, I think it's like seven or eight minutes. Uh, but I'm going to quote something real quick uh, from a book written by Jerry Epstein. Uh, it's a book entitled Remembering Charlie, about Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and it talks about the casting of Buster Keaton and and just like the the thought process that that kind of went behind it that I think personally is kind of interesting. Um, again, from remembering Charlie, quote: Charlie still hadn't found his partner for the violin and, p- and piano sequence in Limelight. At one point, he thought Sidney's stand-in, who had a long, luxurious face, could play the pianist, but he was undecided. Then just before shooting, someone told him that Buster Keaton was available, that he was also broke and needed money. That did it. Charlie hired Keaton. Buster arrived on set wearing his old Buster outfit and with small, uh, his old Buster outfit with small pancake hat. Charlie took him aside and said gently, quote, We're not playing our old characters now. I'm not playing the tramp. You're not playing Buster, end quote. Keaton. Like an opiate pupil, Keaton replied, quote, Yes, Charlie, of course, end quote, and removed his hat and went to wardrobe for a costume. Before our picture began, all the technicians had been excited about working with Charlie Chaplin. He hadn't made a film in years, and of course he was a legend. But after a few weeks of shooting, Charlie Chaplin became just another actor. Now their affection switched to Keaton, He was the new boy in town, but if Ben Turpin had shown up two weeks later, I'm sure Keaton would have been dropped like a hot potato. Charlie must have been aware of the technician's attitude, but chose to ignore it. He just wanted to get on with the business ahead. End all quotes there. Uh, So yeah, Buster Keaton was broke. Uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin needed another person for this particular piano violin sequence in Limelight, and it paid off because Buster Keaton virtually has no dialogue, and he gets to, you know, goof around in you know in in in, in his own way, and it shows and it definitely adds to the film, and especially that scene. Uh, so again, my three favorite cameos are David Bowie. In Zoolander, Kevin McCarthy in The Evasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, a remake from 1978. And finally, Buster Keaton in Charlie Chaplin's 1952 film, Limelight. 
All right, well, that will bring us to the end of Three Squared. Next week, we are going to do another Three Squared. This time, movies that were better than the book. Yes, it is possible for it to happen. It's rare, but it's possible. We're going to talk about those. All right, and that is going to bring us to... The Movies! Yes, so the movies for this week are Southpaw, The Overnight, and The End of the Tour. Where would you like to start, sir? How about Southpaw? Let's start with Southpaw. All right. Uh, 2015 sports drama film directed by Antoine Fuqua, uh, written by Kurt Sutter, and stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Forrest Whitaker, and I guess if you want to, you know, say Rachel McAdams, kind of, sort of. Um, all right. Billy Hope, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. He's like this badass boxer, lives in New York City, he's got his wife, got their kid, everything's happy, honky-dory. Um, then he kind of gets a somewhat Rocky-esque, Rocky V-esque moment, and he's going to retire. He ends up getting uh, kind of called out by an up-and-comer, a la <laughs> also Rocky V. But we'll go with Rocky Three, right? That's probably a better one to use. And a match ensues, a shouting match ensues, and this thing happens, and all of a sudden, his wife ends up dead, a la Rocky Three and Burgess Meredith. Um, can can you see where I'm going with this movie yet? Uh, and then, of course, now uh, this starts a downswing, and can can Billy bring it back? Is there enough hope? For Billy Hope. Alright. This movie is well acted. But I... This, the, that's really the only thing it's got going for it. Uh, cinematography is decent. Directing is merely decent. But the story is just... Um, completely overplayed trope material. Does not bring anything new to it at all. Strength of the acting alone... I give this one 3.25. I wasn't really overly impressed. I have to say I liked it enough that it gets a passing grade, but just brings nothing new to the table. What do you got, sir? There's really not a whole lot to say about this movie, other than that the script is just bad. I mean, if I, I wouldn't mind, I don't mind the story as much if the acting was superb, but it's cliched as hell. Um, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal is a fantastic actor, and his performances, to me at least, was really the only one that shined. Um, and, and, and it didn't feel like he was trying really, you know, just too hard to, you know, try to get an Oscar, I guess. <laughs> but it's just the script. The script is not good whatsoever. Cliched, and it's it, it's just boring. It's just boring. And sometimes that the characters are saying stuff that there's really no, you know... It's just really not necessary. And yeah, I, I mean, I give it 2.5 out of 5. Uh, bad script. It's just all based on Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. And some of the, the boxing is actually kind of cool. Uh, the boxing itself. And it totally looked like that 
not only not only did it look like that Jake Gyllenhaal was actually giving real punches, but at, also that he was uh, it looked like he was also receiving real punches to the face and wherever else. So really cool fight sequences. Two point five out of five. All right, where do you want to go from here? The end of the tour. Okay. End of the tour. This is an American drama film, and it is very, very, very loosely based on real events. Okay? Um, This is about... This is kind of a dramatic retelling of... David Lipsky's memoir about a recorded conversation between him and David Foster Wallace prior to the suicide of David Foster Wallace. So you can kind of see how lost in translation, um, the, the truth of the, you know, slightly biographical nature would be, but that's okay. This is probably one of the most compelling movies I have seen this year that I can truly think of. And the absolute uh, stellar nature that James Ponsolt uses in his directing to elicit the performances that came out of Jason Siegel and Jesse Eisenberg... Um, I like Jason Siegel okay. I'm not really a big fan of Jesse Eisenberg, but holy crap were these performances just on fucking point. That would be badass if I could see that like one day on the screen. You know, end of the tour. Quote on fucking point. Matthew Quinn, SLS cast. Anyway. It, it, but really and truly, it is. I, these these are two characters who have just been completely landed in front of each other and definitely make the... And you can see the transition from journalist, interviewee, to grudging relationship to burgeoning friendship that takes place over the course of a few days, really, um, in which... Uh, Lipsky finds himself as as much as as much at odds and kind of aware self aware weirdness at being ingratiated into Wallace's life, in as much as Wallace is almost kind of a constant irritation um, or constantly irritated by Lipsky's nuances, and yet invites him further in and to watch this unfold over these events and see just kind of these what look like mismatched uh almost just dropped in vignettes kind of over this arc you know overarching you know flashback basically um is just incredible it's incredible the writing for this to take place was just, I, I've, I mean, I've got to hand it to uh, Don, Donald Margulies, who has expertly penned this. I mean, it's, it's literally like he found the heart and soul and just put that 
into the screenplay. He trimmed the fat, and what you see is everything that you need to see to truly be able to find a way to not relate. It's not about relating to the characters this time. It's about understanding the characters and to see where the seeds of the ultimate, I guess, I don't want to say plateau, but definitely ultimate landing for both of these real-life people germinated from. And it's fantastic to watch. Utterly fantastic to watch. Five stars. I have not given... I I was trying to scroll back. I think this is like the fourth five-star I've given all year. Five stars. Unreservedly. We don't have to worry about like The Martian where I was debating the music. (laughs) Five stars. Yeah, if anything, this movie is worth seeing for Jason Segel's performance alone. Uh, I mean, honestly, all around, this movie is worth seeing. It, like, the, the writing is is wonderful. Uh, the dialogue easily could have been uh, pretentious-sounding. It could just be a lot of rambling. It could have been like, oh, they're just making all these references and trying to be funny. No, I mean, the dialogue felt like you were listening to a real conversation between two people that are, at least one of them, is trying to understand the other. Or maybe both are trying to understand the other. I guess depending on how you look at it. But Jason Siegel's performance in the film is very nuanced and it easily could have been made a caricature if it weren't in sympathetic and talented hands. Uh, and, you know, I, I've, I've, this is by far the best performance of Jason Siegel's that I have seen uh, with, I think, between this and Jeff who lives at home. But this is definitely, yeah, this is definitely the best character of his. And I'm excited to see him do more I guess offbeat or dramatic roles because this totally approves that he is more than capable of doing a good job at, 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 at acting. <laughs> and it's cool. Jesse Eisenberg, on the other hand, uh, most of the film, I thought he was good. Uh, and he plays the character. Well, it's just, sometimes he just talks, he can do that thing where he just kind of, kind of, kind of talks like this. And, you know, and, and, and like, you know, that like kind of nervous laughter that some of us do where, we just go, oh, <laughs> you know, just stuff like that. It just, yeah, just <laughs> nervous laugh. Well, he does it, but it's sped up kind of like his voice. So it's just, you know, talk like this and, well, yeah, da, 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 you know, it just the really sped up laughing. And it just felt more like Jesse Eisenberg because that is exactly how he speaks, how he talks. Um, I mean, that I mean, based on, I mean, I don't, I haven't watched every interview with him, but some of the interview or, or uh, most of the interviews that I've seen, he still has that type of speech. Uh, it just felt like him, not necessarily him creating a character, though he does a good job. It just Jason Siegel's performance stands out most, as well as the writing. Uh, but yeah, I give this one four point five out of five. I mean, that's the only criticism I have is just. Jesse Eisenberg's performance. Yeah. And all that. And I also liked how the story is equally about both characters, not just one character. So yeah, 4.5 out of 5. 
Right on, right on. Okay, well, that will lead us to The Overnight, 2015 American sex comedy film. Written and directed by Patrick Bryce, starring Adam Scott, Taylor Schilling, Jason Schwartzman, and Judith Goshri. I'm sorry, Godresh. Um, all right. So what we have here um, is some newcomers to L.A., Alex and Emily, and they believe that they have found some new friends that they desperately need. Uh, and then it's this kind of weirdly eccentric couple, and they invite them over to the house for a play date with the kids. And apparently this is turning into an overnight play date because as the kids fall asleep, Sexual raucous shenanigans ensue. Oh, what will they be? Um, all right. I think this was trying to be the American pie for the grown up crowd. Um, and while I think that it's and while I think that it does have its its moments, and I think that there is going to be a crowd for this film, overall for me, I really felt like it just flat out was trying too hard to be an American Pie for the grown-up crowd. And that's really all I can say. I, I don't really have much to add to it on that. It's not a bad movie. I just didn't find that it was for me. It's better than okay, but I can't really quite say that I liked it either. So I'm just coming right down the middle on the middle and go 2.75. That's it. Go ahead, Tim. Bring us home. That's why I like the movie is that I think that it's not trying to be like anything. It's its own movie, which is kind of nice and fresh. The comedy isn't really something that you're super familiar with. It's not like your Seth Rogen movies. It's not like your team uh, or your, your, your R-rated teen comedies. Uh, despite the number of penises that you do see in the movie, I mean, that's a joke in itself. You know, I mean, it's, it's fun when you see a fake penis, a fake penis joke actually be funny. And pay off, especially once you realize that they, you know, it, you're looking at a fake penis. It just makes it that much more ridiculous, especially when you see Jason Schwartzman just obviously having a lot of fun, just acting like he's being naked when, <laughs> when really he's technically not. Uh, but I thought the movie was interesting. Like Matt said, it's ba it's about like the this the couple, the uh, one couple, Adam Scott and Allison Brie, I think her name is. Uh, they go and stay with uh, this other couple played by Jason Schwartzman and this uh, French actress. Can't think of her name right now. Uh, or I don't even know her name. And I like... So, I mean, in, in real life, if, 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 like, say, me and my significant other decide to go hang out with Matt and, uh, and, and his wife, have a, little, have a little couple's date or something over at their house... And it would turns... not end up like that fucking movie. <laughs> but if it know this now, <laughs> but if it but if it started going toward in that territory, we would just leave. And in fact, this is, this is what this couple would do. They would have just left, except True. they have a kid, and that other couple has a kid, 
And yeah. you know what, kid... little Johnny? It's time to wake up. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's time to go home. But that's how Mommy it is and Daddy at first. Are out by fake penises. Yeah, but that's how it is at first. Like while things are starting to get kind of cooking a little bit before the 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 crazy stuff happens. That is a good fallback. While it's like, well, you know, the kids up, you know, our son's upstairs asleep. You know, the, the, everything is okay right now. But once the craziness happens, the other crutch for that particular plot device is now based on Adam Scott's character, his own vanity towards his penis size. <laughs> and, and, and that becomes the reason why that the couple decides to stay is because of Adam Scott's vanity towards his penis. <laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. So I, I, I like the reasoning for, for why that they're there. It just makes sense. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I also like you really don't have any idea what to expect. This keeps the movie uh, interesting to watch. Um, it seems like something I've... Honestly, I well, I, I wrote this before the, you know, the really crazy stuff happens. But I wrote down, like, it seems like this is something that I've experienced partially out here in L.A. Uh, not necessarily like, you know, we going over and having a late dinner date with a really strange couple. But I've met some really weird people out and about uh, at work events, at just out. And... They're, they're, they're nice, but things aren't really as what you would expect, you know, doing, you know, as you're doing your, your initial judgy wudgy, you know, judging, I suppose. And again, that's what added to this movie being interesting because it's not, it's not necessarily what everything, uh, it's not really what it seems, you know, everything is not exactly what it seems, uh, and, and not necessarily what is happening in front of you on screen, but character motivation, and that's, that, that I think is like the little cherry on top with this movie, is that the character motivation is great, because you're led to expect one thing, but really it's not quite that, and that is all I'll say about that particular, um, Let's see, really good character uh, character choices all around, um, and it all makes sense by movie's end. Uh, Jay, and Jason Schwartzman's very large penis. Also, there's a nice amount of shocking, you know, there's a lot of shock moments in it, but it doesn't go really overboard with those shock moments. Like, you have the gag, but it's not like, oh, we're going to beat you over the head with this gag like you would get with, you know, a Seth Rogen movie or a number of Seth Rogen movies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, I thought it was an entertaining movie. Good character choices. It's not completely laugh out loud funny, but it's unexpected and it's entertaining. Um, I give this one 3.75 out of 5. I did enjoy it that much. And it also helps that the movie is only like, 78 minutes long and it totally works so yeah awesome all right well that brings us to the end of the movies next week's movies are going to be the hunger games mocking jay part 2 spotlight and the 33 so i believe that brings us to the end of the show and the start of the spiel does it not sir spiel commence 
<laughs> all right. Well, the music you've been listening to for all of our segment intros and outros, of course, is brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And I think that's it. So thanks to, well, this is Matt. And thanks to me, I get to say this. Gobble, gobble, bitches. Take care, guys, and have a safe but very fruitful Thanksgiving. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.